Grace to you and peace from God, who is our Heavenly Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, Son of the Most High, and the Holy Spirit, the power of the Most High, who comes to live and dwell, working in and through us. Amen. Uh, some of you may recall this moment. It was August 5th, 2010, when 33 miners found themselves trapped almost a half mile below the surface of the earth in the country of Chile. Uh, they were mining gold and copper when a series of explosions collapsed all means of escape. And so they were trapped deep within the earth with very little chance of survival, with very little resources available to them, whether underground or even above the ground. For a full two weeks, the world waited to hear if there were any survivors trapped down in the mines as mine operators above with the most sophisticated drilling machines that they could requisition sought to bore down as deep as they could and perhaps find someone still alive. It was on day 17, well after any had hoped that they would find any survivors, when the president of Chile uh, joyfully showed this note that had been taped to one of the mine uh, instruments and recovered. The note reading uh, in Spanish, we are okay in the refuge, the 33, uh, trapped deep within the belly of the earth. They had found their way to a rescue station where they found three days' worth of supplies. Somehow or another, they were able to stretch it out for 17 days, but the problem remained. They had no way out, and the people on the surface had no confidence that the tools they had would actually reach them in time. Preparing then for perhaps five or six months deep within the earth. They would send down food and water, medicine and light as best they could. But trapped down deep, these 33 men had no way to have confidence or hope that they would ever get out. Today, we're continuing in our series, Knowing God by Name. And you may wonder, what good does it do to know God's name when you're trapped and caved in like that. Uh, perhaps, uh, by God's grace, you've never experienced being trapped inside of a cave, but maybe you have experienced cave-ins in your life, whether it's financial or physical, emotional or spiritual. You've felt the world caving in, and you know what it feels like to seem like there is no hope. No rescue, no way out. Knowing just the names of God in and of itself may not be all that helpful, but knowing what they mean and knowing the character of God revealed by each of them actually does give us hope. It gives us something to which we can turn and to cling as we realize that God reveals of himself in his word all that we need to face any situation that life may bring. After all, Jesus told us, John 16, in this life you will have trouble. He doesn't promise that we will escape 
the harshness of life. But what he does promise is that he will be with us either until situations here on earth change or until he brings us into the sweet release of the heavenly rest that he promises all who trust in him. Now, you don't need to go 2,300 feet into the earth to experience what it feels like to be trapped on this planet. In fact, in our Old Testament lesson, we hear uh, a story about some friends who had experienced uh, earthly trouble in a very real and vivid way. Uh, the backstory to our, God, our Old Testament reading for today uh, is a skirmish between nine kings and their armies that left two cities in particular, Sodom and Gomorrah, destitute. Their kings had been defeated, their armies had been routed in battle, all of their possessions, their strongest men, uh, the best of their people had been carried off by the evil king, Kedor Laomer, who ruled a series of small towns and villages to the north. It's in that context that we hear this story emerge. Let me remind you of what Pastor Tom read for you a moment ago, starting in verse 14. When Abram, later his name was changed to Abraham, when Abram heard that his nephew Lot had been captured, he mobilized, interestingly, he gives us exactly the number of men that he had, 318 trained men who had been born into his household. Then he pursued Kedor Laomer's army until he caught up with them at Dan, hundreds of miles to the north of where they were doing battle and living down by the Dead Sea. There, verse 15 tells us, he divided his men, just 318, but he divided them up and attacked during the night, and as a result, Kedor Laomer's army fled. But Abram chased them even further north, another maybe 50, 60 miles, to Hobah, north of Damascus, in what we now know of as Syria. Verse 16. Abram recovered all the goods that had been taken, and he brought back his nephew Lot with his possessions and all the women and other captives. So that's the setting and the moment in time where we first are introduced to this name of God, our focus for today, God Most High, or in the Hebrew, El Elyon. El Elyon is a contraction of two words in Hebrew, one that we learned a little bit about last week. If you were here for Pastor Randy's first sermon in the series, we learned about Elohim and Yahweh. Elohim was a plural word used in uh, the reference to God, Yahweh the personal name of God, I am that I am, or some translation of that from the book of Exodus. But Elohim was a more general use of the word God and sometimes was contracted into a shorter form, just the first two letters, E-L, L, and that's what we see here. Elyon was a word that was used among the Canaanite pagan religions to reference what they thought was the highest God. It'd be similar to Zeus, maybe, in the Greek pantheon, the, the God that reigned above all the others. And so the Hebrews took that common word that was a reference to the strongest of the gods and said, that's the one that we're talking about. But we actually know who this most high God is. So in verse 18, we saw uh, the first time that this word is referenced in the Old Testament. After Abram returned from victory over Kedar Laomer and all of his allies, 
The king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, another king from the area, not involved in the battle, but, but present, the king of Salem and a priest of God most high, brought Abram some bread and wine. And then Melchizedek says this, Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, El Elyon, who has defeated your enemies for you. Abram, respecting the priestly and the kingly rule of Melchizedek, and also acknowledging this El Elyon response in these words, verse 22. I solemnly swear to the Lord, Yahweh, remember that's always capitalized as a reference to the personal name of God. God most high, El Elyon, creator of heaven and earth. And so together, Melchizedek and uh, Abram recognized that the victory that he had just won, against all odds, just 318 men going out against a victorious battle after running uh, headlong through the days and nights to get there some hundreds of miles away, this victory that Abram had won, he did not claim as his own, but he recognized that the battle ultimately belonged to the Lord. You see, when you come to understand what it means to have God on your side, the God who is creator over heaven and earth, the one who reigns supreme, you recognize that regardless of whatever your circumstances are here on earth, you have an advocate, you have an influencer who is watching over your every breath, your every thought, your every move. And this El El Yom, this God Most High, not only is aware of you, he also is interested in being involved in whatever trouble you may face. Because he is the only one who has the, has the ability to change the course of your destiny, to rewrite your story, and to bring the deliverance that you need. David later known as the man after God's own heart, on one occasion penned these words. Interestingly, if you look at Psalm 57, you learn that he wrote these words while he was hiding in a cave. He was fleeing Saul, king at the time, who was hell-bent on killing this threat to his throne. And while hiding out deep in the earth, David says this, Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy. I look to you for protection. I cry out to El Elyon, God Most High. While the miners were still trapped in the earth, all they could do for hope was to pray. And interestingly, those who were on the surface of the earth trying desperately to get down to rescue him, them, that's all that they could do as well. Listen to the story. This is from uh, the U.S. American mining engineer. His name was Greg Hall. He was also in training to be a Catholic deacon at his local parish in Texas. Uh, he was the one credited with actually coming up with the plan that allowed them to rescue the miners. But as they were reaching the location where they knew they were hiding out, his mine equipment stopped. He said, we were stuck, totally, 100%. I felt completely defeated, and I thought, I can't do this. Then it hit me, Hall goes on to say, 
I don't have to do this. God's going to do this. He's going to carry it. And then this deacon in training, in the midst of his morning Bible reading and prayer time, thought back to the psalm he read that morning. Not Psalm 57, but another great one, Psalm 63. And he said this, I've done everything I can, Lord. This is your word. As the rest of the story goes, miraculously, Paul would say, the mine equipment began to work again and traveled the last 100 feet to finally reach the chamber. But it only was possible when Hall and all of the other humans recognized that they had reached the end of their ingenuity, strength, and creativity. They needed help from above. Let's go back to our story in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 14. When Abram returned with all of the plunder of war, the women and men that he had rescued, one of the kings who had been defeated in battle, the king of Sodom, came to Abram and said, give me back my people who were captured, but you may keep for yourself the goods that you recover. Now, strangely, the king of Sodom thinks he's in some position to negotiate with the one who just rescued all of his people, right? He seems to have forgotten that he was actually a loser in the previous battle. But Abram knew what was at stake in this moment. So he replied to the king of Sodom, I solemnly swear to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take so much as a single thread or sandal thong from what belongs to you. Otherwise, you might say, I'm the one who made Abram rich. I will accept only what my young warriors have already eaten, and I request that you give a fair share of the goods to my allies, Honor, Eshkol, and Mamre. You see, Abram was a king among kings. Pretty important and influential in that day, but what he recognized was that the victory that day did not come from his strength or might. It didn't come from his ingenuity, cunning, or hard work. It ultimately came from God Most High. And although he may have not had the words back in Genesis, later on Isaiah made it clear this is what God says about himself. I am Yahweh the Lord, that is my name, and I will not give my glory to anyone else. So when people in your life try to push you down, when the circumstances seem like they're dictating your every thought, moment, and feeling, what God says is, I want you to remember who I am. Because when you recognize that I am God most high, and that I rule over all creation, and that I know you personally by name, I've claimed you to be my own, in the waters of baptism, I've removed any other claim of authority over you, and I have adopted you into my family. I have brought you under my protection. And though that means that you will still face trouble in this world, it will not overcome you. For I have overcome the world. And so when you are facing trouble, when you are feeling threatened by individuals or things of this world, turn to God most high. For he is your sole provider. Uh, one more thought. Some of you may remember this moment in history. June 11th, 1963, it was at the University of Alabama. They won yesterday, by the way, against Ole Miss. Can you imagine, though, back in the day, uh, the only people allowed to enroll in that school were people who were white. It was in the South, coming out of the Civil Rights Movement. And here, the governor of the great state of Alabama, most important person in that state, stood guard besides the doorways into one of the university halls and told the deputy U.S. Attorney General Nicholas Kassenbach, right, that's a fun German name, he said, I'm not going to let him in. And he stood his ground with his deputies until he got word that President JFK 
and the U.S. Supreme Court had finally ruled saying, no, you got to let him in. And it was only when the most important person in Georgia recognized that he had someone even more important than him, namely JFK and the U.S. Supreme Court, that had overruled him, that he was finally willing to step aside. You see, he knew a thing or two about what it meant to have authority and to be under authority as well. Now, those miners, they eventually made it to the surface. They were rescued, all 33 of them. But you may not remember how. Uh, Here is a picture of the last of the 33 as soon as he reached Earth's surface. Luis Urzua was the leader of the 33 miners and the last to enter into this rocket ship-like capsule uh, that was called the Phoenix 2. You can see a diagram of the mine there and the spiraling uh, pathway down to the low part of the earth and the shafts that they were trying to drive to rescue them. Uh, To get out of that tight place, they had to fit inside a two-foot-wide rocket ship (laughs) that was then brought back to the surface of the planet. But this name Phoenix, you probably know what that is a reference to, don't you? Right, A mythical creature that would burn up and then be resurrected out of its ashes. Right? A fitting name uh, for the rescue out of the cave that day. But we know a much better resurrection story, don't we? We know of a man who was also trapped deep in the earth, dead and gone, buried, and some might have thought to be forgotten. But this Jesus didn't stay stuck in the earth, did he? He broke forth from his stone-cold tomb, resurrected and victorious over even death and the grave. And the author of Hebrews, Pastor Tom told me on the side, by the way, he loves the book of Hebrews and his story. So if you're going to Bible study, you might actually get a little more of this. We'll see. Hebrews chapter 5 tells us a little more about what that resurrection event means for us. He says, in this way, God qualified him as a perfect high priest. And it became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And God designated him to be a high priest in the order of this strange, mysterious king that we heard about in Genesis 14, Melchizedek. Later on in chapter 7, Hebrews tells us this Melchizedek was the king of the city of Salem, probably Jerusalem, and also a priest of God Most High. When Abraham was returning home after winning a battle against the kings, Melchizedek met him and blessed him. That's what we saw just in Genesis 14. And then Abraham took a tenth of all they had captured in battle, and he gave it to Melchizedek. The first reference to a tithe in the Old Testament. Not to God in the temple in Jerusalem, but to to this mysterious Melchizedek guy. You see, Abraham recognized someone significant in his presence. He recognized that this Melchizedek was not some ordinary king. Hebrews goes on to say the name Melchizedek means king of justice. And the king of Salem means the king of peace. That's what Salem Shalom is referencing. There's no record of his father or mother or any of his ancestors, no beginning or end to his life recorded in history and in the Old Testament. And so he remains a priest forever, resembling the Son of God. This leads some Bible scholars to conclude that Melchizedek was in fact uh, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, in bodily form, reigning there for that moment. And whether or not that was the case, Hebrews likes us to think about his mysterious beginning and end, or lack thereof, as a shadow that was eventually fulfilled in Christ. 
one greater than Melchizedek, one greater than Solomon and Abraham, one who has come to accomplish delivery, deliverance and rescue for us ultimately and for forever. This Jesus now lives and reigns forever for you. He is the Son of God Most High, who has come to redeem and rescue all of his people. So for today, as we close, I'd like you to reflect on these two questions. If you're with someone, lean over and share what comes to mind. If you're on your own, you can chew on it. Uh, is there anyone or anything in life that's trying to take the place of God most high for you right now? Maybe you can name who's trying to have power over you. What can you do or say to help you remember that you have the power of the God most high on your side? And if you want to go deeper into this name in God, I've got a couple chapters there. You can go deep dive in. Just screenshot that. You can look it up later on this week. Whatever you do, we hope that you grow closer together and closer to Jesus during our here in practice time.